Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Doug Too Deep, the officially unofficial podcast for The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power on Amazon Prime. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're back to do uh, another episode covering the Great Wave, this time a feedback episode. Aaron, how's that feedback looking? It's uh, looking healthy. It's um, nice. not quite Illendild at all. It's not like eight foot tall, but uh, it's Illendild and normal. I think okay. we'll have we'll, we'll have plenty of stuff to talk about. Doug too deep at baldmove.com is how you get in your uh your your runic transcriptions for our our council of learned men. Which is just just me and Jim mostly. Uh and we're not that learned. But anyway, Doug too deep at baldmove.com. Uh Raphael is the first to submit we're going to start off on a negative note. They're going to move on. Raphael says, after four episodes of setting the stage, I find myself starting to not care about most of the characters. Southlands, who cares about these people? I feel like they'd not get or they would get along with the orcs just fine. They don't seem inherently good or even a shred interesting. Numenor seems to be a bunch of assholes who think they're above everyone else. Oof. They're losing that competition. I mean, I can't believe they're winning that competition against the elves. Right. Uh Oh, my God, their hubris is just outstanding. Let them drown. The Harfoots, I like them, but talk about their Acronian Darwinism. You sprain your ankle. Nice knowing you. Better you than me. And finally, Galadriel. My lady, I've tried to be patient with you, but I've uh, I've lost you this episode. You need a thousand years of jail time just to cool down. Thousand years jail. To do elves mature psychologically at a ratio of 10,000 elf years to one human year, it would make sense since Galadriel would then be a teenager mentally. I've never had an issue with Legolas shield surfing when fighting or taking down an Oliphant all by himself. Give me 5,000 years of my peak physical condition and I'll give him a run for his money, but doesn't wisdom and being better socially come with age too? Okay, let's unpack this. Hmm. I why do we care about the Southlanders? I don't think they've been very well developed, but to me, it's the f- kind of the first time, except for maybe the Rohirrim, where you're just dealing with average folks. These people don't have magical blood coursing through their veins, except for maybe this Halfbrand guy, Halbrand guy. They're just yeah. uh, they're 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 they make mistakes. Um, they're not perfect. They're just they're just mm-hmm. regular people trying to survive, man. Uh, there's a social stigma to them. I, I kind of think they're cool. I would like for some more characters to kind of latch on, but besides Brown, what Bronwyn, Theo, and you know, the, the evil butcher slash barkeep. <laughs> uh huh. But yeah, for me, it's, it's definitely like the potential redemption story there. You know, these are people who fought on the wrong side of the last war um, if there's a new war stirring, which side are they going to take? I, I find that to be the most compelling as far as like the personal stories. I, I'm I, I'm sort of invested in these characters now. They've done enough for me. But yeah, it's really like as a people, I want to see them redeemed. 
Yeah, it's like this. The elves are Princess Leia. Uh, the Numenorians are Luke Skywalker. And then you've got the Southlanders are Han Solo. Okay. Who, who doesn't like Han Solo? Sure. Uh, and then the Numenor, it's like, I think maybe you, I, I guess, I don't see how they're, like I, I mentioned in joking, passing, I, I don't see how they're winning in a smug, uh, a smug off competition against elves. Like, I, it does feel like they have a massive inferiority complex. Mm-hmm. But the problematic aspect of Tolkienian elves is they are just better. They're just straight up better than than men. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, but but I I don't know, and I guess that's the the charm of them that they're able to you know uh, the, the, have such a big impact on the world despite not being the best. And I I don't know I I also like I you know we we mentioned this in episode three like it is it was crazy dark to Harfoot's talking about how they're just going to leave. Mm-hmm. you know, Nori and her family behind. But it's also like I, I mentioned, there's like a mouse psychology there that like if you're the smallest, uh, weakest thing in the land and you kind of like get by by hiding and moving place to place and keep it's like, you know, that's it's, it's kind of like a, a herd of gazelles, man. And you either you yep. either keep up and the lion comes or you don't. And I think it's it seems cruel from people that live in a society that has, you know, functioning laws and safety nets and a police force that can, you know, protect, protect the rights of the, uh, of the weaker. Um, but that doesn't exist in this age. So they kind of have to be that way or they would all die. Mm-hmm. But I, I wonder if they're going to continue to explore that kind of darkness because it's not what something I attribute to the hobbits, you know? Oh yeah. No, that feels different for sure. Um, in an interesting way, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm torn on the Harfoots as a society because, yeah, I think yeah. like that ideology kind of sucks, but also it's intriguing because you've got individuals within that society who definitely don't feel that way um, and don't like living under the the strict rules, and yet they still don't want to be left behind. So I, I don't know. Sure. I think it's going to be interesting. Um, and then they, yeah, like I'm, I'm kind of with you on Galadriel. Uh, I do, you know, she is young by elf standards. She is very powerful. So she does have a reason for being kind of a haughty and she's also traumatized. Um, I think that's one thing. Maybe the, the one, two punch, the first episodes kind of blunted is the fact that like, you know, she's been on this crazy revenge quest. that seems crazy even by other elf standards who've been through the exact same things like Jesus, this will, she's taken it too far. So I think she's supposed to be kind of hard to sympathize with, you know, but I don't know. Like I said, but is that, is that entertaining to watch? That's right. That's always a question. But it's um, it's a character arc, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, otherwise, like if she was just Kate Blanchett uh, there, she would be a very static character. You have people complaining from the other direction. So mm-hmm. we'll see. There's four more episodes to go and there's lots of seasons left as well. Uh, Caitlin is going to take the other tack on Galadriel as a non book reader. I want to say how much I'm loving the show and especially Galadriel. I've seen a lot of really critical takes on her storyline thus far. Her troll fight too showy. She's an idiot for not seeing the similarities between the symbol and the map of the Southlands. That jumping into the narrow sea made no sense. She's abrasive and unlikable, but I wholeheartedly disagree. 
I only know the characters presented in the films, and at that time, she is wise and extremely powerful, clearly revealed by many elves and non-elves alike. Immediately, I think it's so much more interesting to watch a character on a fuller arc towards that end state than someone who's already been that way. The Gladriel that I see isn't some bastardized version of a character. I'm seeing her face uh, twitches and aggressive demeanor as completely true to the character that this show has introduced. She's a strong fighter even as a child in the Elven Paradise and then left to fight in Middle-earth for hundreds of years. To me, she's a commander, and if I may quote Viserys, not here to be suffocated by all this fucking politicking. As a woman myself who works in a corporate world and is often told I need to play politics to get things done instead of having these decisions made off the merit of my work or situation, I completely get the impulse to respond instead with, no, actually, fuck you, I'm right, and I don't want to play your games. It doesn't have to be smart, but it's honest, and I think it's totally true to what we've seen of her so far, and I'm thrilled to keep watching and see what happens on her journey that molds her into the Lady of the Light we meet in the Fellowship of the Ring. Just want to throw my girl gal some love. And uh, mission accomplished there. Uh, this kind of stands alone as a fully articulate argument and dovetails nicely with what we just talked about. Do you got you got your two cents you want to chip in here? Uh, like I said in the full cast, I think this episode did a lot to uh, swage my my the problems I had with Galadriel's line because it felt to me like the show wasn't going to acknowledge how bullheaded she's being here. Um, it wasn't going to show that that's the reason why she's not getting shit done. Uh, and I think it was, it, it was good of her to like meet Hallbrand halfway with his advice. Mm. Cause I don't think she fully goes over that side, right? She's not like, I, I don't know. By the end, she's off sailing on a boat back to middle earth. So I guess kind of she did, but she got the job done, right? She, mm-hmm. she took, the worldview that she has and synthesized it with a political strategy that, you know, might not, it might still be politics playing, but it got the job done. And I feel like that's what she needed. Uh, Jason Allison comments about the going West of the Numenorians says, I think going West in this case is literally going through the Western part of Numenor. Uh, parenthetically says, I don't think they're making it totally clear. And I'm not a lore hound on any of this stuff at all. I think Isildur's family may be among a group of Numenorians who are still the quote-unquote elf lovers. The queen does question Ellen Deal's commitment to Numenor, and I got that. Uh, got from that her question was directed at more than just his name, meaning elf friend. So is it possible there's an enclave of elf-loving Numenorian traditionalists on uh, Numenor that are situated in the western part of their, that country? Uh, this is extremely plausible. Some other people pointed out in kind of um, uh, uh, support of of this comment that uh, it makes sense that the western part of Numenor would be more elf friendly because like they that's the coast that would be doing the most trade with the elves. You know, if the if the if the forbidden continent west of that is where the elves live that are in the blessed realm of uh, the undying lands, the blessed realm of Numenor, not not Numenor, sorry. Uh, Valinor, mm. uh, it makes sense that that western part of the country would have more close ties. It'd be like, you know, uh, Los Angeles being more closely tied to Tokyo than London, you know, and New York close more closely tied to London than, to- than Tokyo. Yeah, I mean, I think this is right, that it's the it's western just, side of Numenor. I, I will say I don't... 
I'm getting what I know from the lore and what I know from the show confused here. It's it's becoming a jumble because like I don't think mm-hmm. the show has ever told us that Valinor is necessarily west. It just said we're gonna sail to Valinor, and they did. So I agree. I think it's like the maps, which they've kind of gone away from. I've noticed. I think they need to, to always have the maps that, you know, they, they show the, the I, I think they've done that by showing the, the maps and stuff. But Did I, I, didn't, I didn't Valinor mean to interrupt on you. the map. I thought so when there's the, the when they're sailing okay. when Gladrail sailing there. Maybe not. Maybe I, maybe I just don't remember that because to me, it was always confusing as to whether Valinor was an actual place or that you could go or whether it was like a a another realm entirely and when i say realm i mean like a, a different plane of existence i don't feel this job has done of because like all the stuff that you're supposing makes sense but i don't understand why we're having to guess at it like why are they so like they're treating this ellen deal whether he's an elf friend or not as this extreme mystery and I understand mm-hmm. that, like, um, when they have uh, Muriel and her father and, you know, there's like he's sick and like they didn't be a little cagey about his status. But, like, I don't understand why they are being so mysterious about Anarion and Isildur and why he's wanting to follow in his brother's footsteps and what's going on in the western part of the coast. And I, I, I don't understand why. They couldn't clearly delineate the pot because like you, you could be forgiven for watching the show and thinking that like Numenor just all of Numenor just hates elves, you know, sure. like there mm-hmm. is no kind of elf loving contingent that's represented in the capital city except for Ellen deal. And he seems to be going out of his way to be like, I actually know I can kind of fuck the elves, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the old king who is out of power now so out of power and considered crazy and radical all that kind of stuff so i don't know i i don't know why they they they're not being a little bit more clear on this and and using the maps and stuff to more establish yeah i think my my point here is like i'm not sure if the show is doing a bad job or if i'm just conflating things that i know from outside of the show with things that they haven't shown or maybe I'm glossing over the things that they have shown because I already know other things. Um, yeah. Well, maybe it's, bad it's job is not. It's just, it's just, I think it's, it's unclear. Um, mm-hmm. And I, like I said, I'm a person who's watched the show pretty close. I watch each episode multiple times. I am, you know, I'm, I'm somewhere between you and the lore hounds in terms of like my comfort with the, the lore and what's going on. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm just imagining people that have no idea. Cause that's the thing. I got a lot of feedback also this week. It's like, you guys should really watch the Lorehounds, you know, or listen to the Lorehounds. Like, yeah, I fucking do. It's the other thing you got to understand is like, I'm always like a week in arrears because their stuff comes out on Monday morning. We actually mm-hmm. record this feedback podcast pretty early on Monday. So I don't have time to, to, to roll that stuff back. But I always say that, like, if a show can't live and die by just what's on screen, mm-hmm. it's probably going to die. If you have to listen to several lore podcasts to figure out what the fuck is going on, or if you've had to read the Cimmerillion with the last five years to understand what they're hinting at, mm-hmm. it's not great. They need to find a way to bring that stuff and and eat and, and have it explainable. And there's just four episodes left, and maybe there's a reason to keep all this Western stuff you know, mysterious. And maybe I would be better served if I just didn't know who the hell Isildur and Ellen deal is. And I just was kind of like, okay, I was watching this family drama. And I'll see I don't know, some, something about the West. Maybe, but like, it's a bad spot. If people that are kind of familiar with the lore are confused and people who aren't familiar with the lore, I don't know. 
Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe we'd be better off to... to people who are familiar with it. I, I pick up bits because like a lot of that just goes in one ear and right out the other because it's yeah. full of names that I don't know and right locations and, and how they relate to each other. I'll never know. Um, but yeah, th- so having discussions with people who drop lore stuff on a show that hasn't said it yet even confuses the issue further. It's hard to keep all that straight. There's a lot more rings of power to ponder. We'll be back right after this short break. We're getting geared up for the sixth annual summer badass fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Now, let's dig a little deeper on Dug Too Deep. Roberto, speak, uh, staying on Numenor, says, I love the pod. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Question, is the woman's voice that's calling Isildur to the west, is that his dead mother's voice? Is that what they seem to be hinting at? This, or I think that's what they seem mm-hmm. to be hinting at in this episode for sure. Also, it seems like his brother was hearing the same call and became a fanatic. I don't think we'll get the answers on his brother this season. Really? Wow. Um, I mean, it's a lot of supposition, but to the extent that it's a feminine voice calling to him, maybe. Sure. I'd, I'd say that's a likely candidate. I'd also say as far as like getting more information on that this season, I mean, we've got four episodes, but he's supposedly heading east. And if he does right. that, we're not going to find that's, out anything more about that. So they're um, just going to like put a pause on all that. Western we, talk. Maybe, unless we find out. It seems insane, though, to introduce it and then not go deal with it. Um, unless they're setting something up way early. But uh, Yarian's still over there. I feel like maybe she might have some connection to it. Uh, keep us in the loop on the West. 
while he's gone. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Roberto continues. Y'all kind of touched on this when you referenced the Bud Light Silver Bullet training uh, train pulling up to the Guild Hall. I feel like Farazone uh, did, in fact, stage the whole event with the tradesmen. The fact that there was no shouting back and forth and then the drinks were all at the ready sealed it to me. I feel like right at the end of the scene when they embrace Farazon gives uh, he thinks this tradesman's name is Tamar. Tamar look mm-hmm. like great work just as we scripted it. I guess I didn't get. Did you get that um, that there was some kind of like this is a worked shoot essentially that. Um, Nah. He he kind of had these guys r- r- rousing rabble to just so he could come in and quell it and, you know, buy everybody drinks and kind of like it's 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 a way f- it's cheap political theater. And he's trying to make a political name for himself. I did not. I felt like this was just an opportunity he was seizing. I thought it was more, if anything, that the guilds people were appreciative of him, you know, giving his personal guarantee that he's on it. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like, oh, good job at doing all this rabble rousing for me. It's more of like we are satisfied at the res- political response that we've received to our concerns about the elves. Yeah, in my opinion, like the wine just kind of appearing out of the the cracks of the city here is a thing for expediency. Like, yeah, you know, it's it's OK. Bringing the wine and buying everybody drinks. We're all happy now. It would have been a lot less weird if this had taken place in a guild hall. Because I totally uh-huh. think that like the like where all the guildsmen, you know, like uh, all the trades union guys show there. There pro- is probably some kind of tavern and there'd be drink on hand and you could just buy people around. It was just weird that it seemed like in a city square. And then there's all these wine girls just kind of like passing out chilled wine. Yeah. Christopher uh, says Barrick is the name of Isildur's horse. He calls it by name when he first meet his sister who accomp- accompanied Barrick to meet Isildur on the beach. He loves that horse. I did not okay. catch that. And I actually looked. I looked it up on the internet. Yeah, I I even said it's like I wonder if it's a horse's name. I wonder if it's that that cheesy white horse. Um, But I I did a little bit of due diligence on Friday, and I tried to look up Barrick and all that, and I I came up with the wild thing, derivate. But like, yeah, not 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 a ton of people were writing stuff about Barrick thus far. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sam from New York says, absolutely love your podcast. It keeps me watching the rings of power equally as much as the actual show itself. Again, thank you. As someone with outside without outside Lord of the Rings knowledge, aside from the films, I have to ask, do you think the show so far is comprehensible, comprehensible to people who are not consuming outside information, podcasts, Reddit, the books, etc.? Oof, we just touched on that. Often I feel as though during an episode I'm being literally told something or so- something or someone is important in a line of dialogue rather than being shown that it is or they are important or I'm confronted with a string of incomprehensible names and places that often have yet to appear. After four episodes, I could hardly tell you more than three character names on the show. I understand the importance of will- world building in a complex universe like Lord of the Rings, but the way it feels it's being done I f- uh, seems lacking in the show itself. Rewatching Game of Thrones season one has really brought this particular issue of mine with Rop so far to the front of my mind. Yeah, what do you I think? think it'd be super interesting if I could just blank my mind and go watch Game of Thrones again to see right. how that stacks up. Because I agree with you 100%. This is extremely confusing. And if I were not podcasting this, I'd be in the same boat. I'd know three characters' names. Um, cause they've had the most screen time and I would have no idea where we are. No idea. Uh, maybe geographically I could say, well, we're west of middle earth, but that's about it. 
but like as to the city itself i would know basically like the the elves and the humans had a falling out there for some reason and that'd be yeah it. when i'd be all i know about numenor i kind of wish the same and sometimes i know for a fact sometimes book knowledge gets in the way of enjoyment because you're in a spot where you have a good idea of where things are going. So when they deviate and they do things, they, they adapt. You're like more confused than someone who's just, I, I experienced that firsthand last night on the, the house of the dragon show, because like, I thought it was an excellent episode. And like, it seems like you were kind of blown away. Everybody's blown away. But like halfway through, I was just kind of like, you know, I'm the lore guy. And I know a lot of people are going to be asking me things. I'm like, I don't know who the fuck <laughs> is on this dragon. I don't know how the fuck this is happening. This is like, yeah, you know, it's like I, I kind of get gripped up in a way that I think if I was just watching the story, I wouldn't. Uh-huh. Um, and I was trying to think of like, because like I look at Star Wars And when they like when they roll up on Tatooine nowadays, they don't stop and explain to you the significance of the planet and how it works and most icely and how it's a wretched hive of scum and villainy. They kind of assume that you've seen Star Wars and you know what the fuck Tatooine is. And I I I, like I wonder if the Lord of the Rings is trying to roll that way. It's like we don't have to stop and explain every concept because people are at least passingly familiar with it on the movies. But I just don't. I mean, look, people love the Lord of the Rings. It's it's pretty fucking huge. But what's happening is I feel like we're delving in parts of Lord of the Rings that weren't really touched on in the films. You know, we're on continents and people of Sam and Frodo and. And that's what they love about Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah. The, the yeah, mainstream yeah, yeah. mass public like me. Yeah. Like right now, we're not in the Shire. We're not even really in Mordor yet. We're in the Southlands that are really not visited. We're in the elfish realms of Lindor and Aregion, which, you know, are in decline and almost deserted by the time we're in the films. It's, you know, it's like imagine if you go back to Tatooine, it's a fucking water world. You might mm-hmm. have to explain. And I just feel like, I don't know, there is there is this uncanny valley where they're relying on people to be familiar with the source material um, or at least the, the films and stuff. But maybe they're over relying on that just a touch. And I will say um, I was listening to the Lorehounds podcast this week. I was I was super scared because I thought it'd be very spoilery. I don't think it's as spoilery as I was fearing. Um, and I listened. To yeah, it. I think they're doing a pretty good job and not, you know, yeah, I think you can listen to that and not feel like you got spoiled on stuff. Um, so, so I was listening to it and they were talking about, you know, how much they liked the scene where we're introduced to Numenor uh, mm. and and Galadriel explaining like the entire history of Numenor. They're talking about how efficient the writing is and how jam packed with detail it is. And it tells you everything you need to know. And it's perfectly laid out. And I'm like, mm-hmm. maybe to somebody who is already familiar with it to me. It's so jam packed with information, I I lose everything. Uh, like I, it loses me. I have to pause it, absorb the four names that she just said and the time periods that it happened in, and all the people involved. And okay, what war was this around? What? Who are the Valor? Like I don't even know the names she's dropping. So like, yeah. To me, all that information might be there, but it hits you at such a rapid pace that if you're not already intimately familiar with the names that she's dropping you're gonna be totally lost so, yeah it reminds me of uh there's this delete you know the a scene from the extended edition of fellowship where 
they're introducing the combus, uh, co- uh, the concept is Limbus bread, this magic elf bread. And Legolas mm-hmm. steps right into the camera, looks right into the camera's soul, hands a piece of the Limbus bread to the camera. He takes a bite, hands it to the camera and says, Limbus bread, one bite will keep a man going for all day. And and uh, <laughs> in the commentary, Orlando Bloom's joking like, oh, my God, this is my Limbus bread commercial because he's just uh-huh. like. This isn't like showing, and it's that that gets cut off, and Limbus Bread becomes a important plot point later on in the movies. But you don't really have to explain it at that level. I feel like, yeah, that scene with Galadriel um, bordered on like a tourist commercial where she was just nakedly telling you about Numenor, and mm-hmm. it is dense and it is accurate, but it happens. Uh, it, but but that makes it where it's easily missable if you're just watching it once. Like, you know, you don't have time exactly. for any of that stuff to absorb before they're sweeping on to the next set and the next situation. So I yeah. I do. But but also also you got to keep in mind that Amazon is kind of handcuffed because of and, and you have to listen to the insane the the rights deal. The Lorehounds mm-hmm. are that broke all this down. But they have the rights to make a television show of no more than eight episodes. Mm-hmm. So some of these issues might be like, yeah, they, maybe they would like to have things breathe more, but they got to fucking they got to kind of get this thing moving. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, like, you know, obviously they don't have to all be 59 minutes like last week's episode, I think, was 71 minutes. They can, you know, include more material, but there's, you know, they, they don't get to choose like, well, what is the most dramatically appropriate number of episodes to have eight? It's always going to be eight. Because that's as that's as many as we can make. Yeah. And we've always we, we've uh, that's something I've noticed that like when shows have to hit these targets, um, you especially saw back in the day when you had 24 episodes a season where there'd mm. be so many like one off filler fan service episodes. I, I, I saw this uh, in like uh, Breaking Bad when you had 13 season episodes as a thing. There'd always be one or two that was maybe like a filler or bottle episode. And I didn't mind that, but I much prefer when the number of episodes and the episode length is just serves the story and the pacing and the plot. And I saw that executed with perfection with like the bear. It was executed with uber perfection with severance because some of those episodes like 33 minutes, some of those episodes like 75 minutes and they Mm -hmm. always felt the exact length they had to be. Um, But yeah, I, 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 I'm kind of, I'm kind of in that uncanny valley where I almost know too much, but not enough. Gotcha. Vanessa from San Jose says, I was listening to Decoding TV podcast, our their buddy David Chin, and they were discussing the idea that like Westworld, the Rings of Power is playing with multiple timelines. I had a similar thought along those lines. I wondered at first if Halbrand, Halbrand was Theo's dad, but now I'm wondering if Theo is actually the adult Halbrand. Halbrand has a past he seems to regret based on his conversation with the Galadriel. Bringing about the resurrection of Sauron via the blood magic hilt he found as a child would certainly be something to feel guilty about especially if it led to the death of his mother or her elf. Uh, will they, won't they, maybe boyfriend. What do you think? Talk about a departure from the Tolkien writings. Um, as I understand it, I don't think Tolkien's ever done anything like that. I think that would be almost sacrilegious to start doing crazy multiple timelines. Characters are other characters other than like, Sau- like the resurrected Sauron kind of thing. Um, I, he doesn't deal in in 
timeline changes does he well i mean brought no i think that like the closest you can think of is the last two books the two towers return of the king are essentially one deals solely with sam and frodo and then it rewinds and then deals solely with the other part of the fellowship so it's like a very disconnected and um, and but, then but you could Sam also say that like, like Aragorn, Aragorn shows up and he's <laughs> Strider, this mysterious ranger, and he turns out to be his true identity is the lost king of Gondor. So sure. every once in a while. But there is the mechanic here because Galadriel is would is going to be around the entire second age and she's essentially ageless. Mm-hmm. So there could they could be doing something clever with this, but I guess to what end? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to say there's no way. There's no way this is a, a thing they're doing. Yeah. And I'd also was like, wouldn't Galadriel under, know the taint of evil? But honestly, you know, if Sauron takes in all of the most mightiest elves in this ring project. You know, maybe they're not super evil detectors after all. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know. I I tend to be skeptical. Uh, that would well, make me really nervous because that's not my favorite part of the Westworld, to be honest. Yep. And if they get too much too, if I have to do too much decoding on my Lord of the Rings, which is at its heart, a straightforward morality play, then, Mm -hmm. oh, man, I don't know. I don't know. But we'll have our eyes peeled, Vanessa. SLTDMD just listened to your discussion of episode four and is waiting the whole time for to hear your discussion of the old man telling Theo that Sauron is Meteor Man and you never even discussed it. I always thought that the Meteor Man was Gandalf. Now the show is telling us it's Sauron. Please discuss your thoughts on who the Meteor Man is on your mailbag show. All right. I mean, the, the, that's one person's perspective on yes. what the Meteor Man is, right? On what that... He, he doesn't even... He doesn't, I don't think he knows that like a man dropped out of the sky. I think only the Harfoots know that. I think it's... Yeah, it's more of a signs and portents kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of that one season in uh, Game of Thrones where the red comet was in the sky and everybody knew it meant something, but everybody's perspective was different depending on which continent you saw it on and mm-hmm. where you were in life and, and all that. Like, his surmisal is this fiery comet is Sauron's return, but that could be internal <laughs> show. What? He wants it to be, right? Like yes. This self-fulfilling, or not self-fulfilling prophecy, but this, uh, yeah, he, he wants the prophecy to be true. He wants yeah. this to be Sauron returning, so yeah. he's going to say that it is, of course. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Just like people want lights in the sky to be UFOs, so they say, aha, alien presence. Yeah. When it's so actually I, I, just I, a light. I disagree that the show is telling us it's Sauron. It's it's again one, but yeah. uh, you know that they, they are they are doing interesting things with the uh, Meteor Man. You know because he is very coded to be Sauron, but he also has a lot of markings for Gandalf. Um, they did nothing with him this episode. Completely yeah. left him off the table. Yeah, they didn't get. Uh, yeah, it, feel, it feels like uh, you know you can have Harfoots or dwarves. Pick one. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can and they're my favorite parts of the show. So it's like it sucks that I, I, I have to divert my attention like that. But I, I'm sure we'll get back to Meteor Man next next episode. Uh, Joseph says, I'm having a little bit of trouble nailing down the timelines for the Rings of Power. At the end of the first episode, at least one person from every storyline, exception of Galadriel, sees the comet streak overhead. Using this point of view as an anchor. We know that every what everyone is doing and where they are at their respective stories. Aaron Deer and Bronwyn are heading out to check the abandoned village. Elrond and Celebrimbor are on their way to talk to the dwarves. Nori is with the Harfoots in their summer camp, etc. 
Since then, however, it feels like some of those storylines are taking days or maybe weeks at most. Aaron Deer being captured, attempted escape, and then returned to Bronwyn. Whereas others feel like three months have passed. Elrond and Celebrimbor uh, talking in front of what looks to be an almost half-completed tower or forge when Elrond only secured Durin's help to build the ring at the end of episode two. Do you think each storyline is has its own unique time jumps each time we check with uh, in with these characters? Or do you think they want us to believe that this is all happening essentially concurrently? If that's the case, it looks like most of that billion dollars went into jetpacks. Uh, <laughs> I suspect that they might be taking some liberties in order to speed up story aspects. But for me, the jetpacking and pushing workers to build at conditions, which I'm sure are not union friendly, especially stands out since the most famous story set in Middle Earth is about a lengthy, dangerous trek that takes a long time to complete, even the non-extended editions. So I have some thoughts based on, you know, being a little bit more steeped in the lore uh i want to see if you got first crack at it what 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 are you thinking here i mean my my first general reaction is let's wait and see right because like you can develop a story that takes place over three months and another one that takes place over a week and until those stories come together come back together you Maybe, you know, next episode, it takes three months for the Harfoots to do their thing and one week for the builders to to continue building the tower, right? Like, let's let the other stories catch up if they're going to uh, before they intersect again. Yeah. But I, I also, I'm, I'm kind of generally like, I don't really care that much. I, I'm, I'm yeah. not going to get too off in the weeds on like, well, they couldn't have built a tower in X amount of time when... These people just walked a week and the tower would have taken a year to build. I I kind of don't care that much. Well, so like on the tower, it's explicitly mentioned on the show that this is an ambitious thing to do. Like when Keller Brimbor uh-huh. says, I want to build this tower. Elon's like, oh, all right. And I need it done by next spring. He's like, oh, we got to get the, el- the the dwarves on this. And you got to understand totally. that like the dwarves are. And I think they've done a good job at portraying this. The dwarves are almost supernatural with the way that they can work with like rock and stone. Like. They are the contractors. If you want to bring in and bring them to get something done right and done quickly, then you bring you bring the dwarves on. So, like, to they me, that's a testament. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's the classic <laughs> good, good, uh-huh. uh, cheap, on time pick two. And mm-hmm. the dwarves are on time and good. So they, they accept payment in Mithril uh, mm-hmm. and Cimarill. But <laughs> uh, I, I think that um I, I don't have a problem with that because that's just showing how fucking badass the dwarves are at building things. You know, they can gotcha. literally sing the rock and get them to reveal its secrets and its oars. Um, imagine what they can do with a hammer and chisel. So I don't have a problem with that. Um, Eller, so like the other thing is like the fellowship did take a long time. But you have to understand if you've ever looked at the map of how meandering a path the fellowship took, like they wasted so much time trying to get to that, uh, the, the, you know, make for the gap of Rohan. Uh, Saruman turned them away. They had to make their difficult track to go through the mines of Moria. That took, could have taken, you know, a week or two. They had to go. They they were holed up in Lothlorien. They were holed up at Rivendell. Uh, they got you know uh, at at the gates of uh, the Kingdom of Gondor, and then they split up. And one of ha- they go all the fuck over Middle Earth. Whereas Arendir was in the Southlands, got captured in the Southlands, and then went to the Watchtower in the Southlands. Like that's a couple days hike, maybe. So, and then the other thing is like sh- travel by ship is fast, like. 
Back in the day, in the medieval period, well, not in the medieval period because they didn't know it, but like uh, in the age of sail, you could cross the Atlantic Ocean in two weeks, no problem. That's a Mm. big fucking ocean. Nice. So uh, an an advanced seafaring uh, culture, and you're supposed to understand that about both the elves and the the men are very experienced in celestial navigation. They have effective ships with good sails. They understand the trade winds and all that stuff. I don't have a problem with them going back and forth from Valinor to Middle Earth in a few weeks time that it would seem like a historic if it took them months to make that crossing. So it might just be, I think a lot of times people just assume it took, you know, forever to get places, but look at, um, you know, the, like Rome had, you know, 2000 years ago, highly uh, advanced and sophisticated network of roads. You could go like on foot or by cart uh, from one end of the empire to the other in a matter of weeks. So I just think that a lot of times we have this impression that, in the old times, it just took forever to get everywhere. And it's true. Like if you yeah, wanted to, you know, in pioneer. Yeah. If you wanted in the pioneer days, if you wanted to go into town, it might take you all day. If you want to go to the next city over, it might take you a couple of days to a week. But it's also, you know, we're talking, you know, we're talking about a pretty vast place. Uh, the the Americas, you know, versus, um, you know, England. I think all of Middle Earth is supposed to be the Isle of Britain, right? OK. Uh, yeah, it's it, it, it kind of it, than... yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I think I, I think it all tracks. At least, at least I think so. Um, yeah, well, and, and I would say also you got to choose what you're going to get hung up on because like, <laughs> it, never once do you see Frodo take a shit during the entire journey to Mount Doom. But I don't call that unrealistic. I call that just yeah. filmmaking. Yeah. And they also the fellowship are trying to remain unseen. They're taking back. They're deliberately staying off of the well-developed roads and trade paths that Middle Earth had established because they knew that's where the Nazgul would be the first place they'd look. So they were deliberately trekking across backcountry, bushwhacking. You know, it was a much. And again, I cannot I cannot overestimate how much fucking meandering they did, how many times they went hundreds uh-huh. of miles one way and then had to come hundreds of miles backtrack to go through another. So, yeah. Uh, Lindsay says it kind of drives me crazy that you're both acting like prior knowledge of Isildur is some kind of Lord of the Rings deep cut. Not only do you see Isildur in the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, you also see him return of the king during flashbacks to Mount Doom when he couldn't throw the ring into the fire. I believe Elrond even refers to the ring as Isildur's bane in the original trilogy. I have not read these books and I don't consider myself learned all about Tolkien lore except what is present in the films. But I set up and yelled as soon as I hear his name and I think that was supposed to be the point. Jim, you're my litmus test. Mm. You, did you hear Isildur and something stirred in your heart? Uh, I heard. Keep in mind, we just rewatched the films last year, all three of them uh-huh. for for yep. a podcast. So I heard Isildur. I heard Elendil. I heard Celebrimbor. I heard Elros. I heard Yarian, and none of these names meant a damn bit to me. Nothing. Yeah. Like I. If you asked me the moment after I sat down and watched all of the Lord of the Rings movies, who is a sealed door? I would have said who? Who? Yeah. These names just go in one ear and out the other. If they're not like a visual on-screen presence for more than a few minutes, I will not know anything about them. Yeah, I mean, I it, that's just with me. Res- it's, it's not like everybody's like that, but for and I don't me, know. I just don't. This is not knowledge that stays in my brain. And then, like I said, uh, you know, Lindsay might be those like one of those Lord of the Rings fans that have watched the I'm one of those Lord of the Rings fans. Watch the extended edition once a year, every year for the past 20, you know, 20 ish oh, sure. years. 
um, versus Jim, who saw it in the theater maybe once or twice and has seen, you know, it again once or twice. So I, I think I've he's a pretty good litmus test. 20 years, yeah. And like if Isildur's name is mentioned four times in the entire trilogy, I mm-hmm. I, I would I would be shocked. Um, so it's like like Elrond's mentioned 10 times more often than Isildur. Aragorn's mentioned 10 times more than Elrond. So it's like, you know, if if if, if Aragorn's mentioned 100 times, Elrond's mentioned 10 and Isildur's mentioned one. I, I think it's you're an above average fan if you're like Isildur. You know, oh, Leo yeah. DiCaprio name. I, I know that name. Like you're you are in the one percent of of Lord of the Rings fans. If you can have that kind of, you know, Elrond, Galadriel, you know, they had whole fucking scenes and right. multiple movies interfacing. And, you know, they all came back also in The Hobbit. To the plot. And sure. that's the thing. Like, I is Ilsildur actively relevant to the plot as it as it happens in the section right. of history that Lord of the Rings is concerned with? No. I mean, yes and no, but mostly I mean, no. It, it, it's it's an inciting event thing, but yes. the rest of it is he's he doesn't matter at all. Right. So like, no, I had no idea who Isildur was. Yeah. When I so I, I think that's what I was saying. Like I I I mean, like I said, I recognized him, but I I figured Jim wouldn't. I imagine a most nope. you know a lot of even people that call themselves Lord of the Rings fans might that that be a, a bit of a deep cut. Maybe not as deep as uh, Aaron Deal, but uh, which is not Ellen Deal, but it's pretty deep cut. Because uh, that's the other thing is that Ellen, Aaron Deal was mentioned. You know, this is the vial of Aaron Deal, so our most that- precious star. Like, are you supposed to jump up at that name too? That's the the light, the the right, vial the of light that Sam has. Yeah, yeah. I, I I've only gathered that from listening to the Lorehound stuff. Um, sure. Because yeah, otherwise that would have no meaning to me. But that technically is in the film as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on to Kurt says during the discussion about counting views last week, Aaron commented that phone watchers would dominate their entire phone when viewing movies and TV as opposed to being able to background watch. All contraire, even on iPhone, which I believe was later to this feature than Android users and others, one can easily uh, switch apps away from HBO Prime, YouTube, insert video media here and do something else while still watching the media in a small picture in picture. <laughs> Oh my god! It's even resizable and easy. Can you, can you even... make the experience worse? Can we can we make it on a plane, and you can do picture in picture on a plane while you're watching the map of you going hundreds of miles across the sea? Yes, yes. And let's make it postage stamp sized, and let's also put ads running over the audio concurrently. I like that. He says, is this a great viewing experience? Of course not. But as a Gen Xer who occasionally <laughs> does this myself, I can easily see younger folks Ooh. multitasking on our phones with regularity. OK, I, you know, I, mean, I, I don't I stand I, corrected. But good God, what are you doing with your lives? <sighs> Reminds me, there's this Brian Regan skit about if you have ever looked at the there's there's directions on the back of a Pop Tart for microwaving the Pop Tart. And it's mm. essentially put on a plate insert for five seconds. And he's like, <laughs> Who the fuck's life is so compressed that you don't have 60 seconds for a toaster? You got to zap fry your fucking uh, pop tart. And I feel like there there is a lot of like, God damn, do you want to watch the Rings of Power? Then sit down in front of a television or at least a monitor of 20 <laughs> inches or so and watch the goddamn show like you I mean and that's the thing it's like so much of my feedback, especially for larger shows, is clearly from people who are background watching I don't understand how you get how you get anything, you know, how you can absorb anything 
Um, but like, yeah, it's, it's watch it full screen on your phone. I won't even deny you the ability to watch it, you know, while you're a passenger in a car or something. But my God, I, I would like to strap Francis Ford Coppola, Christopher Nolan, all those guys who are who crying about, you know, the death of the theater experience. I could strap them to a chair and let them read this email. Like the <laughs> idea that you're watching their work. On Uh a literal postage size screen within a screen that's five and a half inches wide, it's pretty delicious. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's a terrible, it's a terrible, but like I, you know, it's like this goes back to like 20 years ago when movies first started getting pirated. And it's like the viewing experience of that was garbage. Like I'm literally, I, I was like, mm-hmm. I remember I feel like sitting down to watch one of these shows with my friends. And I'm like, I would literally not watch the movie period. Then watch it in this shitty of a form. Yeah. Um, or those, like even those like telesync where they got a camcorder and a thing. And it's like, Oh, look, at it's a great mm-hmm. picture. No, this is bullshit. Like, goddamn. But nah, they got the audio source right from the board, man. Yeah. But the picture looks like garbage. Yeah, it's all washed out and shitty. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm a maybe I'm a purist, and I'm not saying that there's a right or wrong way to enjoy art. Except for I am saying there's a wrong way to enjoy movies, <laughs> and it's watching it at a what at a point seven five inch inset while you're texting with your fucking friends, sharing memes <laughs> about the episode that you're watching. Like I don't know. You but, you uh, wouldn't accept a text window that small, would you? Then why are you watching <laughs> Lord of the Rings that small? You wouldn't pirate a you, you you wouldn't steal a car. Right. So why would you picture in picture a movie? We got a lot of rings of power to ponder. We'll be right back after this short break. And now let's dig a little deeper on Doug Too Deep. Uh, all right. Uh, we now have the lore corner that we're about to kick off with our buddies, the Lorehounds. Welcome back to the Lore Corner, John Lorehound. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks. Uh, well, let's get right to the to, to the lore questions we got. First up is Zach. It says, this may be covered by the Lorehounds, and it will be here in a couple seconds, but I have a question about what happened to the orcs after the downfall of Morgoth. Was there a peace treaty? Where did the orcs live before the war? Were they supposed to live after the war? I assume something was set up since the humans who fought against the elves were monitored by the elves. Was there a plan for the orcs, or is it just genocide? If so, why were the elves so short-sighted? It seems to me that you give your enemies a choice between genocide and more war. They're going to choose more war. Do orcs have kids? Was Galadriel out there genociding up for hundreds of years? Why do we think the elves are like man before the fall? Uh, I know this is all fake, but I can't help thinking this. there is some winner's right to history type bullshit. Uh, this email reminds me of like, you know, George Martin's got this legendary interview where he's like, you know, everyone likes uh, J.R. Tolkien. But I, I just had these questions about what happens after Aragorn. You know, what happens during his rule? What was his tax rate? What was his policy on orcs? Uh yeah, what what how do we understand orcs and their place in the world? Are there any good orcs? Are they redeemable? Are they just vermin to be eradicated? That seems problematic for a sentient species. What what, what do you say, John? Uh, okay, so orcs have we've we've talked about this a bunch on the Lorecast, but they have sort of uncertain origins. There's some theories that they're corrupted elves. There's some theories that they were created by Morgoth out of other like evil spirits or something but so they're they're kind of uncertain they are pretty much evil uh they uh they theoretically i think are redeemable according to tolkien but there is no case of that recorded um which again (laughs) you know uh i i think 
he mentions uh, it's about history being uh, writing history and being written by the winners. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean these are elvish uh, annals, so they could be erasing that. They do have kids. Tolkien doesn't like to go into detail because he's so Catholic, but they do have kids the the same way the men and uh, and the elves are having kids. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, I always thought that there was some kind of. Uh... You know, like they show in the movies that like uh, uh, Saruman's is kind of growing these guys like mushrooms, which are, and and, and uh, you know, I'm a big Warhammer 40k fan where the orcs literally are a bioengineered species where they spread through some type of spore, you know, and they're extremely hard to eradicate once, you know, if you know anything about mushrooms and spores, uh, spores are hardy. So they just kind of like, you know, you can wipe them all out and then turn your back for six months and more orcs. But they're just. They're just sexing it up. Is the was the Urukai origin in, you know, the Fellowship? Is that kind of like heretical or a, a different path? Or, um, I would have to get back to you on that. But I mean, there's also like, well, they're Urukai. They have some man blood in them. What does that? That's mean? true. <laughs> they weren't as straight. They, they were like crossbred with man in some kind of weird ass way. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, he was a little hazy with a lot of the orc stuff. I think because he was troubled by a lot of these moral implications, and he was like, "Well, that how do I have this sort of purely evil, evil force and not have any redeeming quality, or maybe have one suggested and have them being just killed in the in the thousands?" I mean, I guess you could have the if if they if if uh, and I know that he wasn't even sure about this origin, but if their origin was like they were twisted and corrupted by Morgoth, then maybe the kindest thing you can do is kill them so that they can have a chance to go to heaven. Yeah, true. <laughs> you know, like uh, uh, you just end their wicked ways, and and then they can be sorted and judged by uh, Uru Arugula, and uh, <laughs> can we get that on everything? T-shirt? Will be okay. Can the Bald Move Art Club get on that? We could do that stuff that we could talk about for sure. <laughs> I, um, I was trying to say if there's anything else that because that's just, you're right. Like, um, I mean, yeah, like if the orcs know they're going to be hunted to extinction no matter what, then they'll never stop fighting. They'll never stop fe- uh, feuding with man. Right. Right. But there's uh, a lot of problems with that. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. There's just a lot of unaddressed issues and we're just going with it here. It's a fantasy series. Sometimes you just have to have uh, evil, unredeemable. Uh, essentially, they're all they're, they're, the orcs are all Nazis. Uh, they're born into it, and they choose it willingly. And they're just they're just bad. They're just all bad. Yeah. Bill from New Jersey says, with the introduction of Isildur, I'm officially lost when it comes to the time setting in the Lord of the Rings universe. The Rings of Power takes place at the beginning of the Second Age, but the last alliance of men and elves take place at the end of the Age, and it's centuries apart from the beginning. Is Isildur alive for the entire Second Age? I know Numenorians live longer than most regular men, but they're still mortal. This isn't the first time the show has been loose with time. They seem very fluid in how they refer to centuries, years, ages, etc., this always makes the world feel smaller and untethers me through the story. Almost in the same way that Star Wars established and forgets about the Jedi in an 18-year period between episode 3 and 4. Um, that's something that's always bugged me. Like, ever since the prequels came out, you know, like, that must have been some kind of uh, repressive regime the Empire had going on that they could just extinguish the memory of the Jedi to where they're just myth and uh, fiction, you know, uh, but but it just just eighteen years later, um, yeah, it'd be like if the, if if nine eleven was a myth today, 
You know, like there's still people <laughs> that live to see the towers fall. There's I mean, I guess people it is a myth to some people. So I, that's yeah. uh, well, <laughs> what, what type of myth is. It's yeah, like everyone true. agrees it happened. It's just um, so what do, what do you think about this? Because like, I honestly, this is one of the things that I was like, uh, when the elves got to the undying lands and there was this like big spiritual barrier between uh, them in the real world and almost like a portal was opened up. That kind of surprised me because I thought at this point in time you could sail west. There wasn't any, it wasn't like the, the world was unmade or something to keep you from doing it. It's just you you really, really shouldn't. Uh, right. It, it, it's it's like I mean, Jim are talking about on the podcast like uh, in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve, don't eat the uh, uh, tree of knowledge. But then after they ate it, he kicked them out and put uh, two angels and a flaming sword barring the path. It's like, okay, you're there's like, first I'm going to tell you, and now I'm going to force you. Um, where are we at time wise? That's a great question. And Bill, we're going to get you reoriented. Um, this is actually towards the end of the second age. I, I don't know if something in the show misled you into thinking it was the beginning, but this should be towards the end if we're sticking to the books. And um, so the Second Age actually lasts thousands of years, not hundreds. So you're right. No Numenorean could possibly live that long. The longest living Numenoreans, the longest one ever lived like 500 years. And the longest ones now are, you know, somewhere between 200 and 400 years. So you're absolutely right to be confused by that. But let's just reorient you to the end of the Second Age. Aaron, you raised the question of the going to Valinor with a barrier. I think that mm-hmm. is anachronistic with this. I think that's just artistic license because they want gotcha. to take. I mean, uh, we talked about on our show the quote from the fe- the Fellowship, or no, it's the the Return of the King when Frodo is going off to Valinor, and oh, uh, it's the one that Gandalf recites to yes. uh, Pippin. Yeah, uh, they reappropriated the, 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 on the movies. eve of the battle. Yeah, yeah, right. So I think they just wanted to do that, and they gotcha. are taking artistic license. But yeah, you're you're right that at this time you can sail to Valinor. Okay, so when did the first age end? What was the the the, the inciting event that ends the first age? Was it destruction of the trees? The War of the Jewels with Morgoth. Okay, so, so it was the is... the War of the Simmerils Simmer, that, right. that that ended it. The defeat so, of Morgoth and his casting off into the void is the end of the first age. So are we to understand the Galadriel like because they imply it's been centuries or whatever, but she's been questing in Middle Earth on her revenge mission for literally thousands of years yeah and if you look at the death of finrod that happens like middle of the first age that's not even at the end so uh this could be thousands and thousands of years which is why um i guess it's a little hazy how long she's been doing this maybe she's been varying it up maybe she only recently started doing the the war tactics and she was doing more of an inspector gadget thing before that uh but you know it is a little bit loose so we are late in the second age and they're just kind of like, you know, expecting us to be a little hazy on exactly how far along Galadriel's been doing this. And, right. you know, I don't think we're equipped to understand elf concepts of time, like doing anything for thousands of years for a single minded focus seems ridiculous to us humans. Because, like, what the hell? That's that hundred, you know, orders of magnitude longer than we even get total. Right. So, I mean, at the same time, elves are noted in... uh I think it's the nature of Middle Earth to actually experience time more slowly. So a moment lasts longer in the mind of an elf, even though they live longer. Mm. So they, they, it is a little weird that she's doing this for thousands and thousands of years. And to, to the show's credit, it's seen as weird by even the other elf fanatics. Like sure. all the other uh, elf special forces with her are like, damn, 
can we go home? You know, and that's like forget about the base because she even says like most elves at this time when she's climbing up the ice wall, they have, you know, if not healed from their hurts, at least turned their eyes away from it and are trying to find some other hat. She it's just her and her band of fanatics that are still, you know, hot and heavy after Sauron and, and the remnants of Morgoth's forces. Right. Yeah. So so Sauron has been, you know, if you go by the book, Sauron has been around a little bit in the Second Age. He's actually gone toe-to-toe with the Numenorians a little bit. Um, so it's a little bit off the book that they're um, that they're having Sauron be this forgotten entity. Uh, but at kinda, the same time, yeah. that's also in like really extended writings, and they don't even have the rights to that. So I'm okay with them disregarding that to have more of a mystery. Uh, Nina has a question about Adar. First off, when he finally came back into focus, I recognized, I recognized him immediately as Benjen Stark from Game of Thrones, mostly because he <laughs> looks a little worse for wear, much like Uncle Benjen is deteriorating. Yeah, I I didn't realize this until people sent us the feedback, but that is indeed Joseph Maul who yeah. played uh, Benjen. Nina's question comes from this uh, noticeable deterioration, plus something you mentioned during your season one, episode four coverage about elf ear sizes and that a dark had used uh, about half the span of Elrond or Celebrimbor's uh, ears. After laughing about Elrond's ears bordering on donkey level, I thought about something. Is there anything in Tolkien or elf lore that mentions what happens to elves who turn to the dark side? My assumption is they gradually lose their ethereal, omnipotent elf qualities until they become self- something else entirely. Maybe their ears start to shrink or lose pointiness, per se. Since power corrupts, I imagine to be something like the One Ring slowly but inevitably corrupting Smeagol, the hobbit that turns into Gollum. Is this what's happening to Adar or any elf who chooses to be evil? Is there any truth or lore to that? Maybe the more noble the elf, the bigger the ears. Hence, Elrond. Uh, first of all, is are they trying to show some kind of racial differences between the elves with the size of the ears? Because it is truly remarkable how much larger Elrond and Celebrimbor's <laughs> ears are than like Galadriel or Arendil or even Adar here. Is that just kind of like, uh, yeah. You know, Tolkien, who will describe the bark on a tree, did not go into very much detail on elf ears. So this is sure. a show creation. Maybe they're trying to do that. Maybe not. We haven't seen all that many elves yet. We're more with mm-hmm. the men so far and the Harfoots. Uh, but I'll say this. You are in for a treat because on the Lorecast this week, we did a whole segment. Me and Jim, I confused him with a bunch of fallen elf lore. And we go deep into things in the first stage that could be considered like the darkness of elves. Although I'll tell you this. They don't really go evil. That's not a thing that elves do. They can be assholes, hmm. but they can't really be evil so much. I mean, Feanor does some pretty bad stuff in the first age, but it's it's more greedy than evil. Well, he does he does do some kinslaying. All right, debatable. But the fallen elf concept is something that I've used as, as an umbrella to describe elves who were captured by Morgoth and who escaped uh, and were turned away from their um, uh, from their peoples because they couldn't trust if they were actually brainwashed by Morgoth and let out as a ruse or if they came back on their own accord. So I could see Adar... My favorite theory is that Adar is one of those elves who actually did escape Morgoth and then got kicked out of his his hometown because they said, well, you're probably still under the influence of him. Yeah, there's about an eight-hour gap between me and Jim recording our feedback session and this one. So in that meantime, when I was going to pick up my son from school, I listened to your guys' podcast, and I thought your guys' Yeah, I definitely encourage people to listen to the Lorehounds uh, companion pod because some of those theories are really... uh, really nice and it's like a very um 
you know, kind of like a twisted thing that uh, these elves who were captured and kind of corrupt, not corrupted, but brainwashed by Morgoth when they're released back their own kin, their own kin is like, you have the taint of evil be gone. Right. So it's like they have no real place. to. There's there's no home. They, they're they're men without a country. Right. And how do you separate the elves that were released as a ruse? Because that's something that Morgoth was doing. He was sending spies back who were like chained to him. And the people who genuinely escaped, you just can't. So you have to have a blanket, you know, immigration policy of you can't come back once you mm-hmm. leave. Yeah. Uh, J-Cubed has a, a, an idea that builds on this. It's uh, I think Celebrimbor may have already made with the help of Sauron the 16 rings that are given to dwarves and men. They're building the tower to forge the three rings without uh, Sauron's help or Anatar. I guess it's his avatar. Speaking of which, maybe the blade hilt is needed for the forging of the one ring. Maybe there's some essence of Sauron still in it that needs for the forging that he needs for the forging. Finally, maybe Adar is one of the sons of Fianor. He looks like he has been severely burned. The final two sons of Fianor were burned by the Cimmerils. Could Adar be one of them? I didn't remember this. Could you talk about the burning by the Cimmerils? So the Cimmerils will burn people with like evil in them. But you said the elves couldn't be evil. Yeah, so that's why it gets a little bit complicated. Ah, Uh, there's always exceptions to to the proof rule. I'd have to go over that a little bit. The the Noldor, the Sons of Feanor in particular, took that bad oath to regain the Silmarils through murder or whatever else. Defying the will of the gods, essentially. Yeah, and and they were pretty much, other than Maedros, they were all pretty much not cool people. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm assuming it's from that. I have to review that story though. Um, in general, I don't think the Celebrimbor has made the rings yet, but I could be wrong. Uh, it seems like he's I would be shocked. To do that, yeah. I mean, I think that they're going to want to show that. Yeah, me too. And like, I think that they're probably going to want to in- introduce Sauron uh, so that you know he can. Uh, hey, uh, I hear you're doing this, this this ring project. I got this special sauce that really kicked this thing into a whole right. other gear because it's clear that Celebrimbor doesn't want to just make something beautiful. Right. He wants to make something with power that can really, you know, make a make a what he thinks is going to be a positive change to the world. It's not just, right. you know, he, he wants to like he said, the, the Cimmerils are so beautiful. They almost turn Morgoth good. Right. Uh, and he wants something on that level of accomplishment. And you can tell that he'd probably leap at the chance at someone offering him a little bit of extra juice. Um, I like the idea that this could be one of the sons of Fionor, though. The burns, the scarring, if yeah. he wasn't truly burned by the light of the Cimmeril and he's got some, you know, he's uh, and it didn't quite burn the evil out of him. Um, <laughs> but he's like this third, third way elf. I think that's. Probably my second favorite theory past the one that you advance about him being one of the elves that have been rejected by his own people for association with Morgoth. Yeah, there's another theory that he could be Maeglin surviving the fall of Gondolin, which is another one of the... He's not a son of Feanor. He's he's one of the Noldor. He's got a lot of darkness in him. His father was the only one labeled with Dark Elf, and that was because Ooh. he settled in this like extremely dark forest near the kingdom of Doriath. If that means nothing to you, don't worry about it. But, gotcha. Yeah, so his father was that, and then he was half Noldor, so it would be a sort of interesting origin story. I guess it is debatable whether he survived or not. I'm sure we kind of would have seen him at some point, but maybe this is the explanation that they're going to give us. What do you think about this idea about the hilt? Um, you know, having some essence of Sauron's power that he needs back to to do his forging of the One Ring. Yeah, I mean, I could see that, except... 
Sauron was not really mortally wounded in the last battle of the first stage. He he actually mm-hmm. came out pretty unscathed and he was fine. He actually it's it's funny there's a story where he goes to one of the other Maiar and he says, "Hey, can I get a vibe check on Valinor? Do you think I could come back without consequences?" Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the other Maiar says, "Um, no, you killed like thousands and thousands of people. Just You're so going to have people. to go to justice." <laughs> and Sauron says, Fine, I'll stay here in Middle Earth. So that's pretty much where where Sauron is at at the beginning of the Second Age. He's not he's kind of in hiding, but he's not damaged. So I don't know why he would put something into that blade unless it's for the same reason as the One Ring, this domination focus. Yeah. Do you think it's more? Because I, I I guess that blade is more of a Morgoth thing than a Sauron thing, is what I was guessing. Mm. Yeah, that could you know, be. These men are described as like servants of Morgoth, not. Mm. And that's that's they who they're fighting on the side of. It wasn't like Sauron was running things at that time. Or well, am he I was the chief that? lieutenant. That was his title. He was the chief lieutenant of Morgoth. Okay, so he's like a capo regime, mm-hmm. but not the the ma- the mafia mafioso boss himself. <laughs> right. uh, all right. Well, again, appreciate all the thoughts about the extended lore. Um, uh, we we had a, we had a couple ones this month or this week. Tell people uh, if they want to hear more about you and Jim discussing your greater evil elf that are not actually evil elf theory. Uh, <laughs> if they want to get more of that information, they want more Lorehounds content. Where do they go? Yeah, go over to the Lorehounds feed. It's called the Lorehounds, the Rings of Power Lorecast, if you're listening in season. And uh, subscribe over there to get all our stuff. We're going to be covering other shows this fall, so keep subscribed to that. We actually did our inaugural spoiler section where you kicked off one of your questions to us to to address some spoilery uh, lore questions uh, this week. So you can go to the post credits and get some of that if you're somebody who's not spoiler averse. So yeah, hope uh, hope you uh, check out our podcast. Thanks. And just and just to be clear, they they do clearly march at the very end of the podcast. They're following kind of like the bald move suite where it's like, you know, we pretty are spoiler averse. And if we are going to talk anything spoilers, always going to be at the very end of the podcast with lots of off ramp for you to get the, the, the switch the podcast off if you're not down with that. But I, I yeah, I, I listen to the Lorehound stuff every week. It's usually a week in arrears because you guys release on the morning that we record the podcast. So mm-hmm. it's like. But yeah, uh, thanks again for coming on, John. This is going to wrap things up for us here on Dug Too Deep. If you'd like to send us feedback for next week's episode or this week's episode, I guess, it's Dug Too Deep at baldmove.com. You can follow Twitter, follow Bald Move rather on Twitter, twitter.com slash baldmove. And uh, we, I, yeah, I can't wait to see what uh, is in store for episode five. See you guys then. <laughs>